0: No one's really stepped up and said this is a serverless framework, like Kubernetes and Docker and container D have for the container space. So I'm wondering if this is Amazon attempt to do that, you know, if, if contain if Lambda is friendly with containers and containers are everywhere, does that mean Lambda is suddenly everywhere? And so I, you know, it's just me, me guessing.
1: For them to do, I think that we're probably going to see the same thing here with um, you know folks who are trying to lift and shift their container into uh, you know one Lambda project, And, and it's going to be interesting to watch you know how that unfolds and what kind of management nightmare that's going to create for them.
2: Well, welcome to 2021 and the second season of Cloud Talk. My name is Jeff Deverter, the host around here, and in this episode, I've got three cloud professionals who are going to give you their thoughts and opinions about the AWS reInvent conference that happened over three weeks back in November and December of 2020. And they're going to tell you what they think is the most impactful from that conference.
1: The line between application and infrastructure is virtually invisible in these modern apps. The kind of thing that a global computing fabric with immense resilience and scale can deliver without even breaking a sweat. That's really what the promise of the cloud's always been. It's all focused on the business objectives. That's where we craft the plan. In the tech world, we like to celebrate the lone genius, but I'm just going to tell you right now they're just the convenient face as founders to focus on.
0: Welcome to Cloud Talk. Here's your host, Jeff DeVerter.
2: Well, as everyone is aware, AWS reInvent has redefined the way they're doing their conference this year. And instead of a, a solid week of mayhem and announcements, it's now three weeks of a slow drip in some cases, not so slow of a drip, of of amazing content that they're releasing. So what we thought we would do is bring together some of our experts to talk about and give you our opinions on some of these announcements and what is amazing or maybe interesting or maybe curious about some of them. So I'm joined today by a couple of great folks, and I'm going to introduce them, let them tell you a little bit who they are, and then we'll be off to the races. I'm going to start with Mr. Josh Pruitt.
1: Josh, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, thank you, Jeff. I'm Josh Pruitt, as you mentioned. Um, I've been with Rackspace for about 11 years, and my, my position here is VP of Public Clouds. I'm responsible for the AWS, Azure, and GCP uh, product management, engineering, and development groups.
2: Fantastic. And the latest addition to uh, this core team of folks is Mr. Amir Kashani. Amir, will not you introduce yourself?
3: Yep, great. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here with everyone. Um, I've been with the company going back through a couple of acquisitions for about 11 years, but it's true that I'm new to my new role of VP of Cloud Native Development and IoT Solutions. Um, so really excited on um, the announcements. This is always you know Christmas early for, for me, hearing um, reInvent and all the good stuff coming out.
0: And last but not least, Taylor Bird. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, good, to, good to be here. Um, So, I have been in the, uh, I guess, the corporate ecosystem for about five years here at Rackspace and Anika. I've been in the AWS cloud world for about 11 years. Um, So, I currently help oversee our global roadmap and and technical strategy, working with uh, yourself, Jeff, and and Amir and Josh and their peers as we uh, sort of look to the future. So, events like this are always really exciting for me.
2: Yeah, it's super exciting because we have the opportunity, you know, the things that we get to invent uh, here at Rackspace that enables customers to be able to either create new applications or how we support them or how we scale them in a global fashion, really in a lot of cases rides on these types of announcements. And in fact, it influences a lot of our roadmap and what we get to do. And so I'm really excited today to get to talk about what some of these new announcements are and what the implications, not necessarily for us, but our customers are. anybody who even thinks about using this sort of stuff. So, so, you know, Taylor, since you've got the mic handy and you've got the conch, let's talk about one of the uh, announcements. And that's this this um, EKS distro that they've created, this, this Containers Anywhere. You know, tell us what it is and, and tell us what it actually means.
0: Yeah, uh, these were, um, I'll say surprising. Uh, maybe that's the wrong word, but a very interesting announcements from AWS to really see that a number of their container offerings uh, are now being offered in flavors that you know you can kind of run in your own data centers. Um, so uh, ECS Anywhere and EKS Anywhere are enhancements that allow you to connect your Kubernetes clusters uh, in your data center to the AWS control plane. So you have the same API, you manage them the same way you d- would something in one of the regions. Um, and then a lot of that is facilitated on the Kubernetes side with the EKS distro. So now you can run the same Kubernetes engine uh, that AWS runs in their data center in yours, uh, to kind of give you that experience. So, so the one hand, I think I think this is great for customers that are um, you know invest in the Kubernetes ecosystem, have really built a lot of their solutions on things like EKS, because it definitely opens up that that hybrid world to them and removes what I would say is sort of a barrier to entry when you do a, a multi-cloud, multi-setup uh, hybrid Kubernetes, which is multiple engines. Um, so, so really really great stuff there. I think that's that's incredibly interesting for people using Kubernetes. Um, there's a flip side take on that that has me uh, concerned, might be the wrong word, but um, this was an interesting behavior from Amazon to sort of say, you know, hey, we, we've already kind of won or in many ways we were the leader in a lot of public cloud innovations. So now we're going to start offering services that are available in the uh, in the private cloud, in the hybrid space, in the data center. So we're going to want you to start running AWS software and services in, in your data center. So I think this is a really interesting approach, something we haven't really seen from Amazon AWS uh, in a number of years, right? I mean, we had VMC, the VMC announcement a couple of years ago, but that's it. So I'm interested to see where things like this really take the competitive landscape. You know, on the one hand, if you're all in AWS, this is fantastic. On the other hand, if you're the customer who, who AWS is part of your portfolio, you know, you're now looking at having to make an additional choice. So you're a single vendor or a multi-vendor. In addition to location and, and hybridness, you're now going to pick your vendor alignment as well. So um, I'm watching that pretty closely. I think that could have some interesting ramifications on our uh, our industry. So it's re- really interesting to get that out of the gate in, in Jassy's key. Well, and it raises the question a
2: little bit as well. You know, there were some very bold statements made a few years ago of, hey, the cloud is for everything and everything in the cloud. And are, are we backpedaling a little here?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting... Uh... My take on it, I don't think it's so much of a backpedal. I think at at that time, if you looked at a lot of us uh, doing similar videos and podcasts at the time, I think we all sort of said, eh, maybe. (laughs) But I think uh, as as enterprise and larger institutions, government institutions, science labs have really evolved into, um, you know, as they've adopted cloud, you know, cloud isn't just for startups, it's not just for migrations, as they adopt cloud for innovation, hybrid and the the ability to do things in a low latency way in data centers or just be out of the public cloud for various reasons. It's sort of a mainstay now, it's not a thing that it's not really a choice many customers have. And so I think really, this is just AWS uh, following that industry trend, uh, but doing so in a very interesting way, not not sort of ceding that ground to other vendors in the space and saying, you know, no, our technology innovations, they invented public cloud, but um, they also have really important use cases of in other scenarios, and so I think I think it's more of that. So maybe it's
2: more of um, instead of a of a backpedal, more of a reality check of you know what uh, this is great technology, and great technology really should be able to to run anywhere. Uh, Amir, what are your thoughts on on all of that as far as the announcement, and then also sort of some use cases?
3: To me, it seems like a pretty shrewd move on AWS's part. Is you know they're seeing that the demand for hybrid cloud and to take a you know kind of ideological view that everything must be in the cloud is is obviously one that they recognize they're gonna you know they're gonna have to defend. So to start taking their control plane and services and to expand it beyond their cloud into data centers and wherever the workloads are seems seems like a good move to me. Um, I, I understand some of the concerns there. It'd be kind of interesting to see how it plays out and how some of the other public clouds respond um, to to this sort of move.
2: Well, and Josh, as somebody who's been around Rackspace, looking after you know our the, the public cloud that Rackspace managed for a number of years, as well as you know, countless other things that you've done here, and the experience that you've had, you know, I think that that you know you would have something to add, or even substantiate that you know what. It's not a purist world it doesn't all one in one location I mean we see a great mix of that at Rackspace you know maybe maybe speak to
1: that a little yeah I agree and I, I think that you know if I look at um, how we, we have customers who are wanting to go all in on cloud but at the end of the day we, we know that there's still a ton of development work and a, and a ton of um, you know applications that are running that aren't in the public cloud. And as much as you have something like uh, Kubernetes that's there to eliminate the need for dependencies and, and be able to run anywhere, you you run into you still have dependencies on um, everything that it makes up your Kubernetes distribution. And so I, I think that by by them, um, you know, making this public for everybody to be able to use, you're going to start to eliminate some of those dependencies, um, and and it's really going to just further ingrain folks more into the AWS ecosystem. Not a bad place to be
2: ingrained into. And Amir, you were you mentioned a little bit before about if we continue this container conversation, you know, the container story continues as we think about how you now with the announcements of of containers running having support inside of Lambda. Why don't you unpack that a little for us?
3: Yeah, that was a pretty exciting um, and unexpected announcement. So for, for those who aren't super familiar, you know, Lambda is, you know, the core of the serverless compute model that AWS introduced, gosh, six years back or so now. And it's, um, while it's it's had a lot of advantages in terms of having developers and builders focus on their code and really kind of forget about most of the infrastructure, it, it's meant that it's been a fundamental change in how you develop applications. So all of the developer workflows and, and many of the tools that developers have been used to for, for years and years have you know basically been thrown out the window and you've had to kind of pivot to this, this new model. And it, that this is all happening in parallel with, you know, the rise of and uh, the rise of and popularity of containers, which is, you know, the message there is you can have, uh, you know, the common environment running on your your dev workstation, you know, translate that into your your cloud environments, your keyway, your pod servers, and, you know, even in a data center. So these two things have sort of been diverging in terms of how should developers be building applications. And, and this is a bit of a convergence of that. So what what they've allowed you to do now is rather than saying that you can only ship us code in your Lambda runtime, you can actually package up a container, the same one that you might run in you know any sort of Docker or a Kubernetes environment, and and run that in with la- within the Lambda runtime with a couple of tweaks, um, and you know get some of the benefits of that tooling that th- those ecosystems within Lambda. Now that said, I, I have some concerns. Um, so just like we saw when you know when Lambda came out. There's 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 potentials for misuse, right? So some people took the notion of function as a service a little too far, and they packaged up their code into little bite sized pieces, and you know they'd have tens of try to deploy tens of thousands of functions, and and have a management nightmare. And others did you know the sort of opposite where they did monolithic functions, where you'd have all of your code and everything deployed as a single lambda function. So I think that we have the same sort of risks here. It's going to be really important for um, people to for first to develop best practices and guidelines to to help guide customers and users to what is the right approach, which containers do make sense to, to build and maybe migrate, which ones don't. Um, but it's definitely a really interesting opportunity.
0: Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think Amir makes great points. I had a very uh, similar reaction. I mean, on the one hand, a lot of projects that we've been involved in, uh, I would say at any scale uh, for an enterprise problem solving, you're, you're using containers and you're using serverless. Like I'll kind of full stop there, right? I mean, you're using both. There's some really interesting workflows in like Kubernetes where you're using the Kubernetes uh, construct of a task to invoke a serverless workflow. So these two go in tandem. Uh, we talk about them often as if they're separate or evolutionary discrete, but really they go they go in tandem. So, to so the one hand, I think this is really interesting. Um, it, it sort of you know it combines those workflows as Amir mentioned. Uh, it's not necessarily where I saw what does service look like or what does service look like in a hybrid cloud. This is not where I saw this going, and I think it might be Amazon's answer there. Uh, the the slight controversial take for me uh, as the eternal skeptic is is this a bit of a Trojan horse move? You know, is this a way to make you know serverless one of the only big problems with serverless that I've seen over the years is there's so many frameworks. Every cloud does it differently. Conceptually, it's bought in, but there's a lot of work to go from concept to implementation. Um, and no one's really stepped up and said, this is a serverless framework like Kubernetes and Docker and container d have for the container space. So I'm wondering if this is Amazon's attempt to do that. You know, if if, contain- if Lambda is friendly with containers and containers are everywhere, does that mean Lambda is suddenly everywhere? And so, I, you know, it's just me, me guessing, but I'm very interested to see if this is very similar to an EKS Anywhere announcement, you know, in a year from now, we'd be seeing Lambda Anywhere style announcements. What does that mean for technologies like Knative? Native? So, um, really interesting to sp- uh, space to keep an eye on. I'm going to be watching it really closely over the next few months.
3: And to your point around that, we're, we're already starting to see a little bit of that, right? We're starting to see, um, you know, Lambda is already available to run in um, on edge platforms like like Green Grass and and whatnot. So there's a, there's a lot of that going on.
1: Yeah, and I I agree with what Amir brought up as well. Of I think that we're going to see a lot of folks now. Um, you know that. It used to be that folks were doing lift and shifts over to EC2 instances, and you know that was kind of considered what people were doing to get to cloud, not necessarily the right thing for them to do. I think that we're probably going to see the same thing here with um, you know folks who are trying to lift and shift their container into uh, you know one Lambda project, and, and it's going to be interesting to watch you know how that unfolds and what kind of management nightmare that's going to create for them. So, and aren't we? It doesn't. Does
2: this signal, you know, some continued behavior that we're seeing if you look at it at the macro level of more AWS coming out of their data center into insert data center of choice? Well, and where else does an IoT project go but into data and data becomes, you know, ML type projects to, to figure out what that what's going on with that data. So, Taylor, take us down the data road. What was interesting there to you?
0: Oh, man, uh, so much interesting. You know, I think you, you used the phrase a, a few minutes back that this is a sort of AWS sneaking into the data center. And I think with the data announcements, uh, this is the very opposite of sneaking, right? I mean, we, uh, you know, if last year or two was really SageMaker's coming out party, sort of establishing, you know, the right to speak on these topics. uh, I think this year was where we really just saw, you know, AIML in, in every facet, right? From the you know I, I want to do the the deep learning at the compute level through things like that i think it's the trainium chip and the Havana instances and ec2 where that's really the build it yourself option through all the enhancements around sagemaker including uh, sagemaker pipelines i think is really vital i mean this is solving a problem that ai ml's had for a long time that a lot of companies ourselves included you you have to invent solutions here um uh, and and in many ways you are um sorry, it, you know, in many ways, th- this solves that, right? Uh, you see the same thing with the data wrangler. I mean, just the simple idea that these sort of inherent problems to implement AIML, uh, where you end up spending 40, 50, 60% of your time, uh, Amazon continues year after year to release solutions that sort of get you out of that, to remove the undifferentiated heavy lifting that they once removed from infrastructure, they're now removing from from AIML. So I think we we saw that throughout the SageMaker Um and then even into the the sort of out of the box services, I think uh, Amir mentioned a lot uh, with Monitron, uh, the lookout services that they announced, things like DevOps Guru, right? I mean, AI ops and the concept of using AI uh, to help operate your environment is, is sort of a, what I consider an emerging tech, but we see straight out the gate, uh, a solution from AWS that enables you to do that. So um, I really think with, with AI ML, I mean, Amazon is, as clearly said, we, we are and will continue to be the leader in the space. Uh, and it's not just one space. It's not just SageMaker as a as an IDE for developers. It is, however, you want to consume AI and ML, we're going to have a solution for that. So I was I was really taken aback by the number of announcements and the number of areas they're getting into. But but at the same time, these are really fleshed out announcements. These are not the MVP that we usually get from Amazon. These are fully functional, well baked, targeted services, and that was really interesting.
1: Yep, I, I completely agree with that. And the the, the challenge that I think that um, the vast majority of IT buyers out there are going to have is uh, how they can look across the landscape of everything that has been announced and and all of the advancements being made in the AI ML space and figure out exactly how do they apply that to you know their particular business their workload and and what they're doing um, you know and, and how do how do they actually go and make that real um, and apply it to their business I think that's 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 going to be tough for a lot of folks. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, actually, I actually always like talking about um, IoT, not for IoT, but but the data, right? It's no one's doing IoT because you want something connected in the world. You want to you want to get insight into the real world, and you know the, the 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 intersection of that data with machine learning is sort of the holy grail. Now, in this case, you know um, they've released a service that's focused around the security, which should be forefront on everyone's mind when you're talking about iot if you're not thinking security first you're you're making a mistake Um, and iot defender is is a kind of a a growing maturing product that's allowing um, customers or AWS customers in the cloud to get insights into how their devices are performing Um, traditionally and thus far you've had to think about all the anomalies all the things that could go wrong and, and set up specific rules for those to be notified um, this new ML Detect is is going the next step where it's looking at trends from your data, so actual data that's flowing into AWS, and it's automatically deciding what are the anomalies that might indicate a breach of security or something that you have to um, dig into. So it it should give people a lot of confidence, especially you know folks who are in companies that are not um, technology companies or have, or entering IoT because you know one of the barriers of entry there is making sure you have a secure product, and to the extent that AWS can help. Give you a leg up and take a little bit more of that responsibility, then you know it's definitely a win for everyone. Isn't
2: that always the challenge with new tech? And that's how do we make it real? Uh, how do you how do you give it a vision? I think IoT was a, a technology, a concept that that struggled with that for a number of years. But there's some great examples uh, of that out in the wild now. Um, but but thinking of IoT, let's talk about IoT Defender and ML detect the collision of IoT and ML.
3: Yeah so okay so here's here's a here's a contrived one so let's take the uh, Monitron example as 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 a starting point let's say you've deployed Monitron along with a couple of your own devices that you want to use to monitor your factory floor so you're getting mon- you're getting vibration data but you also have some temperature maybe you have some forced impact on 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 various equipment that's rolling around the shop floor now what if what if a uh, uh, you know some some um, nefarious actor got access to one of those gateway devices or one of those devices. And, you know, in a, in addition to sending um, real data, they're starting to send some fake data that might throw off with the intent of throwing off your, um, your operations. Now, in theory, if you have... Um, if you understand what your traditional data looks like coming in from these sensors in terms of number of data points per second, um, valid ranges, if you have some sort of detection in there that looks at the those um, outliers, you'll have some insight, maybe not exactly on who's doing it, but that something's going wrong. And it'll give you a starting point to to start researching and, and diving into a potential breach before it becomes a wide-scale attack. Along those lines, you know, very similar, very um, common attack vector rather is to take over these devices. So not necessarily mess with the operations of, of the company using those sensors, but rather take that and build a botnet out of it. So if you're able to monitor the um, outgoing connections and the type of traffic being produced from your devices, again, you're going to have a leg up and a huge advantage um, to start stopping an attack before it becomes, before it becomes real.
2: So, Taylor, you've been working in this ecosystem for, well, well, over a decade. What did you see that really caught your attention?
0: Yeah, you know, a lot of uh, management tools and and what I really, what the focus I really saw is less, uh, I mean, there's some ops tools announcements. We can cover those. I think it's really cool stuff. Uh, You know, things like Cloud Shell. Um, Other providers have had this for a long time. We've been asking AWS to add this. Awesome that it got added. Uh, But what I really want to focus on is developer experience, uh, the developer tooling that came in here. Uh, you know, if you watched uh, Dr. Vogel's keynote uh, and one of the key takeaways, I think he actually put it on his Twitter stream as well, that, you know, AWS at its core has always been uh, to build a platform for builders. Um, and he had a really poignant point in his keynote around in the age of COVID, at the age of this pandemic, that's really incredibly important because it's how these things are developed. I mean, it's a whole thing around... Now we have to think about people working from home, kids attending school from home, low latency connections being a problem for everyone, not just a problem for oil wells and and forestry sites. So just this huge continual focus. Uh, Amazon always amazes me because I always come back to the core tenets. That idea of what can you build for your customers has always been important. So... So stepping into the announcements from that I think we saw some really some really great things along that uh, I mentioned cloud shell I think cloud shell makes uh, just life a little bit easier for multi-tenant the, the one thing that really got me also was the fault injection simulator uh, if you have been going to reinvent if you have been watching anything you know you'll hear stories about customers like Netflix and their chaos monkey and this idea of not only do you you know have great monitoring but actively attack your environment all the time try to break it so that when it breaks organically you're prepared and maybe the system's prepared Um, so we always talk about that. It's always like a 400 level class that everyone goes and they're like, Oh, this is great. Then we talk about it at the bar and none of us actually do it. Um, well, they they brought the service called fault injection simulator, which is really a lab and an automation platform to enable you to do that in your production environments. Um, so I thought that was a really big, that, that really stood out to me of that. Not only are we going to say you should do this, we're not going to give you cool talks about it. We're actually gonna give you a service to help you do that. So I think, um, I thought that one really stood out of that. as something really stood out for me. I didn't know, um, you know, Amir, Josh, you get other ones around the dev and the management tooling, but just that focus on building the right software, um, I really thought was interesting. And I liked how they brought it back to that. All right. Well, um, now we've got all this great new stuff.
2: We still have to manage a lot of it, uh, all of it. And uh, there's some new tools there. Taylor, take us through some of that.
0: I, I think you know, another really interesting thing that we saw, Jeff, were uh, some of the managed services. And that's a it's a tough term because it means so many things. But really, I am specifically focused on... Um, the Amazon managed service for Grafana and for Prometheus, you know, for those unfamiliar, these are, uh, you know, uh, metrics driven databases uh, and visualization for sort of telemetry metrics that come out of applications are really commonly used in the container space uh, and see some of that in Lambda and obviously a lot of other instances as well, but they're they're becoming really mainstays. Um, And these services are great. I mean, it's out the, out the door. These are things that most companies need to stand up similar to like an elk stack for logging. Like most companies just select this. So they need to build it. So Amazon bringing that out the door, I think is really helpful. Um, but it was really interesting to me to see them pick these two and, and bring these because I think it really holds true to that core tenant. They always say that, you know, the whole purpose of these tools is to remove undifferentiated heavy lifting. Um, and, and I think that's, that resonates here, but they're really sort of challenging builders, IT managers, everyone to say like, what is undifferentiated, right? I mean, you could have a whole job based on Prometheus and Grafana two years ago. That'd be a very well-paying career for, for an individual in an IT shop. And now you have a cloud provider saying, hey, you know, if that's all you want to do, uh, we'll just run it for you. you just click a button. Um, and I think that's a really important theme, maybe more so than the uh, the services themselves that I think AWS continues to challenge our industries in really cool ways to say, you know, hey, you can't just do the same thing. You can't be good at one thing for your whole career. You've really got to move forward and just let some of that stuff go. Once the industry's decided how to do a thing, let's just do it. Um, and so a lot of people argue with me it's not the best solution, et cetera, but I thought that was really interesting to see that uh, that was AWS's take. Uh, I think we'll see more of this more. Okay. Everyone's using X. uh, So we're going to start to just do a managed service for X. And I think that's, that's really interesting for those of us that build applications on the platform. It's also interesting for startups and ISVs that are looking for ways to value enhance the platform because you got to hedge your bets a little bit. If you're going to go down a very myopic path, it's very easy for the platform provider to kind of come and put you out of business the next morning.
2: And Amir, there were some other announcements that happened in the data space. Why don't you take us through that?
3: Yeah, a few actually. So we're starting to see some of the benefits of, you know, that Um, Amazon's investment in building their own database technology, Aurora. So the first one that's really exciting is the compatibility layer for um, MSSQL on top of their Postgres database. They're calling this Babelfish. Um, The idea here is with minimal and perhaps no code changes, you can migrate your data from a production SQL server to... Um, fish and point your apps and, and be on your way, which is obviously really huge in terms of customers that are are struggling to get out of you know licenses and the high costs associated with SQL Server, some of the challenges that they have in terms of scalability and keeping up with you know operating at cloud scale. So we'll see how it works out. This isn't in, in preview right now, but it's um, uh, early preview, so not even public preview yet. But um, it's, it's a really promising, bold um, move by AWS's part to to take on um, you know the the private and kind of closed source databases that they've been rallying against for for so many years. The other one is um, you know v two of Aurora Serverless, right? So Aurora Serverless is um, again built off on their platform, and it's the um, the promise of the serverless compute model and the scaling model, which you know basically offloads any respond any real responsibility you have to doing it, and brings it to databases, so that the database will automatically react to changing workloads from almost zero load to hundreds of thousands of transactions per second. Um, you know, and they've taken a the second stab at this, where you know they're coming out with the the, 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 mo- the new model for serverless. Um, Aurora Serverless, that promises to be even better than before and really bring it to the enterprise and production scale where um, I think there were some gaps and limitations in, in V1 that they recognize. So really, really exciting that they're you know continuing to invest in this um, built for the cloud database technology, Aurora, and um, looking forward to utilizing these on customer projects.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, Babelfish is really a shot across the bow in, you know, the reinvigoration of the cloud wars, um, where you've got a ton of folks who um, are locked into their MS SQL licenses that are, as we all know, extremely expensive, and the ability for Amazon to just say, hey, look, we can, we can solve that problem for you really easily, just uh, plug this here in the middle. Um, I think that's huge. Uh, I think that we're going to see a lot of people take advantage of it, and you know, it, it makes you wonder what's going to happen um, on the on the Azure side, and will you, will you see Microsoft? Um, have to come up with something to compete with that, or are they going to start to lose market share to AWS for customers who are wanting to go that direction? Um, it'll be interesting to watch.
2: So, you know, you could say it's a shot across the bow or it's a shot right into the hull, but are you really, is it really getting out of one life trading one licensing scheme for another? Now we, now we're going to take the lock in that AWS has for me. Um, you know, what, what's the real savings here?
1: That's a great point. You got to go run the numbers on what Babelfish is actually going to cost you to run um, and, and see if you actually do come out cheaper than paying for your MS SQL licenses.
0: Yeah, but I think I I just want to add, I think it's really, you know, for years, l- literally years of keynotes, Amazon AWS have, has have talked about move off of these other platforms. They're too expensive. They're too lock-in. Even with the biggest competitors, even the, you know, even frenemy type relationships, they've always said, move off these platforms be it Microsoft or Oracle. This is really, I think, um, in addition to all the anywhere stuff we already talked about, Babelfish is really interesting because it's like, now they've said, you know what? If you're not going to move off the platform, we're going to make it so you don't have to. Uh, and so that, that just really stuck out for me. It's something incredibly interesting. New approach. We're not going to lose this war. If we got to fight it a different way, we're going to fight it a different way. And so that one really, uh, I like Josh's comments. Uh, Cloud Wars are back on. Should be
3: interesting. What's really interesting to see is what sort of battles this this may cause within Microsoft. Right? They have competing business interests. There's the folks who run run SQL Server, and and they're not necessarily going to be completely aligned with 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 the guys who are responsible for Azure and the cloud. And you know, they're you know, th- th- this move is definitely going to compete one business unit against another. So that'll be kind of fun to watch. Indeed.
2: Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. Always interesting. Uh, I think we may be back here in a month because we got some more announcements coming in January and. Uh, we'll hopefully unpack some of those for our listeners as well so with that i want to thank you guys for being a part of the afternoon
0: this has been cloud talk you can find cloud talk wherever you find your favorite podcasts and be sure to check out more content from rackspace solve at solve.rackspace.com
2: Well, there's never a dull moment in the cloud world. Always transformation, always innovation. Now, as I mentioned in the opening, this is the beginning of season two of Talk, and we're so excited to be back. And I'm also delighted that Dell Technologies has agreed to be our sponsor for a second year, helping us to make everything that we do here at Solve a reality. Thank you so much for your support, Dell. Now, one thing that I've noticed over the past year is that many of you have changed from simply listening on the website to being subscribers of the show. But I want to encourage the rest of you to subscribe to us over at Apple Podcasts or Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever app you like to use. And when you do that, would you please give us a rating? Five stars would be great. And leave a comment. In fact, if you ask us a question in there, I'll answer it on our subscribers Q&A episode coming up later this quarter. Now, here's what you have to look forward to in our next episode of Clown Talk.
1: Automation has existed for 30 years. And still, the percentage of tasks, the percentage of uh, things that need to be automated that have been automated is very, very low. And the question is, why is that? And the reason is that all automation has really been built for IT professionals. So for you to, you know, create automation, you need to have a computer science degree or you need to have an advanced certification in computer science. That's the only way you can create automation. Everybody else who's a business user doesn't know how to create automation. The idea of robotic process automation is to create a solution that business users could use to automate their tasks.
2: And that's next time on Cloud Talk.